Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, Helen and I are joined by Shashank Joshi, who is the defense editor of The Economist, and we're talking about Putin, Ukraine, how we got here, and what might happen next. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading review of culture and ideas. And the LRB is returning to first principles with their latest exclusive offer for Talking Politics listeners. Get 12 issues of the magazine for just £12, and they'll also send you one of their surprisingly famous tote bags, acclaimed by the likes of New York Magazine and Vice. Just use the URL mylrb.co.uk slash talkingbag. That's mylrb.co.uk slash talking bag. Shashank, I think we're going to try and structure this conversation by starting in the here and now and then maybe going back a bit because a lot of these problems, conflicts have very deep historical roots. But I suppose the the basic question to start with, and maybe it's the hardest question of all to answer, but you've been studying this, you've written quite a lot about it. What does Putin want, do you think? Uh, David, thanks for having me back on. I think what Putin wants is more than anything else to stop Ukraine's westward drift, which is a much bigger problem than its legal, formal membership of NATO. There are all kinds of other things he wants. Of course, he wants to roll back NATO's memberships to the uh, borders it had in 1997. He wants to halt its further expansion to other places like Georgia or Bosnia. Uh, And he wants to stop America deploying medium-range missiles in Europe. So there's a whole laundry list of things that we can discuss. But uh, the nub of it, the nub of this crisis is Ukraine. And what he wants to stop is Ukraine integrating more and more to the Euro-Atlantic community, particularly in defence and security matters, something that's been going on and on. Um, And if I'm correct in saying that's what he wants, then I think we have cause to be extremely pessimistic about the steps he'll take next. Yeah, I just wanted to push you a bit, Shashank, on this NATO question. Because one way of looking at this would be to say, well, Ukraine is concerned, look, the idea that you Ukraine was ever going to join NATO is just a a pretense. Um, It was pretty clearly made clear to Ukraine back in 2008 that it's not something that that France and Germany would tolerate. And it's pretty clear, actually, that it's not something that the, the Americans could seriously commit to. So one way of looking at it, and I think I think I went too far down this road, I think at the beginning of the crisis of thinking on that matter, Putin actually already has what he wants. And in some sense, you could see part of what he's doing is demonstrating that truth, if you see what I mean, that NATO membership will not be on offer to um, Ukraine. But I think that you're right in that there is more to it than that. But what from the point of view, just in the military sense, so if we leave aside for the moment, the place of Ukraine in various sort of supply chain issues, obviously, including um, energy, what is it that um, Putin might actually fear about a relationship between NATO and Ukraine that wasn't about membership? I think there's lots of things. And in recent years, you have examples of this. For example, the UK is building a naval base. It's helping Ukraine build a naval base on the Sea of Azov, which is, of course, that little pocket of water just above the Black Sea, wedged to the northeast of Crimea. And I've heard Sergei Lavrov fume about this in speeches. You know, he's saying Britain is building a naval base on the Sea of Azov right on our doorstep. Um, Britain, Canada, America, other countries are training many, many thousands of Ukrainian troops, making them, in theory, much more capable of being combat effective. Arms are flowing in. Of course, since 2018, America has supplied javelin anti-tank missiles, which are very, very effective anti-tank missiles that have long ranges and would do a lot of damage to Russian tanks. Um, There's all sorts of other things as well. You know, we're now seeing the Poles say they'll send surface-to-air missiles. Um, We're seeing Stinger missiles, the famous Stinger missiles that um, inflicted such losses on the Soviet Red Army in Afghanistan also flow into Ukraine. So all of those things are proceeding 
even under circumstances, as you say, where everyone understands Ukraine is not going to join NATO as long as it has a festering open wound in the form of the Donbass conflict on its eastern border. So I think what Putin worries about is Ukraine becoming a more militarily capable actor that could eventually be a sort of springboard for Western military power against Russia, um, which feeds into a bigger concern, which is Ukraine developing in a more Western direction politically and economically, and thus serving as a disturbing, democratic, prosperous example of what Russia is not. That may be years and years away, but I think that's in the back of Russia's mind. And and so if the things that he fears and perhaps wants are months and years away, presumably he also has something that he wants to come out of the current crisis. And you are, and I'm not in any sense a defense expert, but there's something feels weird about it, the kind of public open nature of the threat, the extent to which everyone knows that there's been this huge buildup of Russian troops and the infrastructure to support those troops on the Ukrainian border. It's almost become a cliche of this. And Biden, among other people, has articulated this, that you can't build up that many troops and not then do something. Um, I'm not totally clear. I understand why. I don't know if that's logistical or sort of psychological. It's either a logistics question or somehow the thought is that he's put himself in a position where anything other than some kind of action would seem like a a stand down and a loss of face. But what is the thing, say, over the next two to three months that he you think he wants to achieve that would counter success here? Is it really true that you, you can't build up to this extent and not stand down? I haven't seen a build-up of this scale in, in well, I don't think we've seen a build-up of this scale for decades, so it's difficult to find direct comparisons. Logistically speaking, he, he he could stay there for months, but he does have troops from the Eastern Military District, which is which is an incredibly worrying sign. These are troops from as far away as the North Korea and China borders of Russia. They can't stay there for months. They're so far away from their home bases that they would have to be used. There's also the slight problem of the weather changing, the ground thawing in Ukraine, and lots of mud is not very good for armoured forces, particularly big heavy tanks. It doesn't mean you can't do anything after March, but it does make it a little bit trickier. But I think the biggest problem is psychological. Having issued these sweeping demands, having set down his red lines, having threatened what he called military technical response measures, that's Putin in December, I think backing down would make clear to everyone that he gave in. And the lesson that NATO would learn is that its strong line, its its promise of sanctions, its arms deliveries to Ukraine, all delivered Russia. And we can all quibble as to whether reputation or credibility matters in international politics, but I think leaders tend to think it does. And that would guide his decision. So my assessment now is that I don't think we're looking at months at all. I think we're looking at weeks. And I think that come February, there is a high likelihood of a military offensive against Ukraine. And moreover, I think that if I'm correct in assessing Russia's objective, that is to stop Kiev from moving closer to the West, a small conflict, one, for example, that simply intensifies the fighting in the Donbass region or takes a little bit of land uh, to Crimea, that won't suffice because that will just leave you with a more embittered and angry Kiev that will redouble its turn to the West and the West will keep supplying arms and will keep training troops. So unfortunately, as difficult as it is to say, I think we are probably looking at a Russian objective of regime change. And I think one of the reasons we struggle to come to terms with this is that it seems so atavistic. It seems so such a throwback, as you said. Uh, you know, the last build-up in this way was probably America's build-up ahead of the Gulf War in 2003 uh, or ahead of in Desert Storm in, in 1990, 1991. Um, but we, we struggle to imagine he would do it, but he can. And I think at this stage, he probably will. Can I just pressure again, um, Shashang? I mean, not because I've got a clear, like, alternative hypothesis um, here, but I just want to see whether you have, um, really. If these aren't his objectives in the way in which you've just, just described, then what might be a plausible other interpretation of, of what he's doing? And I'm thinking now particularly in terms of this is a set of tactical um, moves that might achieve some objectives in terms of the relationship between 
the United States and the European Union, um, or I, I, I'm not actually excluding um, the European countries, European Union and Britain and, and NATO's in, in, internal cohesion. Because I think if you listen to what's coming out of Kiev itself, they seem less convinced of the it's all preparation for a military invasion. Mm. It seems, at least as I see it, that they're they're worried that this is kind of like um, the beginnings of just kind of like psychologically playing with them for a a protracted period of um, time. And that what we've seen on the Western side of the crisis, so to speak, is a complete absence um, of any unity both within the European Union, in the relations between European Union and Britain, in the relations between the European Union and the US. And obviously, part of what Putin's trying to do is just to make the European countries absolutely irrelevant um, to this and try and just turn it into a Russia and the US can settle a new um, Eastern European um, order. On that latter point, I I slightly disagree, Helen. I think that that was his intention, and it looked as though he initially might have some success at that. But I think all the European diplomats I talked to were generally happy at the level of coordination by the US, even the French, who, you know, have their own (laughs) unique approach to these things uh, and, you know, want to strike a more independent pose and want Europeans to take their own more independent stance. Generally, there is contentment with the US position. And after a difficult beginning, I think we're seeing a surprising level of European unity, particularly on the question of uh, sanctions. The German debate is changing. We can get into some of the questions around Nord Stream 2. There's general solidarity with Ukraine. So I'm not sure I agree that there's there's been as much of an absence of unity as you, as you suggest. Uh, we saw a statement two weeks ago by various European leaders, as well as the president of the council, the president of the commission, the EU commission, the head of NATO, all of them saying sanctions would be swift, very punitive, let's just say. But let me just go back to your earlier point um, on sort of the Ukrainian assessment and what the other alternative hypotheses might be. You know, we've probably all seen that internet meme of the little dog sitting on a table with fires burning all around him going, this is fine. Um, That's how I see the Ukrainian leadership right now. I think they're deluded. Uh, There's definitely an element of avoiding panic, avoiding economic meltdown. They see themselves in a long competition with Russia in which Russia is trying to sap their strength and undermine them. And so they think that acknowledging the risk of invasion would be to give in to that and risk a coup or instability in Kiev and thus allow Russia to get a victory peacefully that it would otherwise need to fight for. I think that's just grossly mistaken. And I think the strategy they're taking to undermine the US messaging is is, is dangerous from, their, from, from the point of view of securing support that they need. Um, but there are alternative explanations. I don't buy them, but let me just air them. One of them is that Putin wanted the pageantry and the summitry and to show himself at the center of world diplomacy, which he has, of course, got. In the last few days alone, he's spoken to Macron, to Orban, to Draghi, to, and he will speak to Boris Johnson after we have this conversation. So he's put himself at the center of European diplomacy. The other prospect is he's willing to settle for something less, um, uh, particularly, for example, on um, missiles. And he's always said these American missile defense shields in Poland and Romania, these are actually offensive missiles secretly. And now the Americans are willing to talk about them. You weren't previously. Look how my muscle flexing has got me what I want. I don't think that really satisfies him. It's, It's pretty small fry on the level of the future of Ukraine. And then the third possibility, which I'm mean, got a little bit more open to, is something we haven't mentioned, which is Belarus. Russian forces are streaming into Belarus for um, what are said to be exercises. They're not really exercises. They weren't planned. Um, there is a possibility that after we see a constitutional referendum in Belarus this month, that Russia simply stays there in force. You can call it an annexation of Belarus if you like. I think that's a little, a little bit of a strong word. Um, you know, some people talk about the union state of Belarus and Russia, but the point is a long-term integration of the military capability of Belarus and Russia in a way that would pose a real threat to Poland and the Baltic states and would consolidate Putin's rule and his legacy in various ways. Do I buy that completely? No, but I think it's a possibility we ought to be alive to that he says, well, you know, um, I didn't get what I wanted, but I'm sticking around in Belarus. This is now the future of European security. Deal with it. Shashank, I read a word this morning that I'd never seen before, which was invasionologists. I don't know if you consider yourself an invasionologist, but apparently the invasionologists have settled on the 20th to the 22nd of February as the likeliest dates for this invasion, partly because of the end of the Russian-Belarusian 
military exercises. But if that hypothesis is true, that that's actually the center of it, then it doesn't hold. And then also because, and I've heard, heard this before, we had Neil Ferguson on this podcast about a year ago saying that the likeliest date for China to take action against Taiwan was after the Winter Olympics. And again, I believe Putin is going and there will be a summit between him and Xi. And then when the Winter Olympics are over, that's his window to attack. What role might China play in this if if Putin is indeed going to be speaking with Xi, do you think? We've seen some interesting indications of Chinese diplomatic protection for Russia at the UN Security Council in the last few days. I think that the timing is is shaped by both military and political considerations. Russia won't have its full build up in place until the you know, mid February, we could call it. The Belarus exercise is due to begin on February tenth. I think Russia would would have all of its forces in place by then, um, uh, and it could fly in troops to to man the equipment. It could fly in airborne forces and move move warplanes very quickly in under two or three days. So that would be sort of tactical tactical timing. The Olympics, I think, is a really fascinating question because in the aftermath of any attack, if there were to be one, China would become considerably more important to Russia than it is even today. Now, let's be clear, there's already a lot of things going on that are very important. You know, for example, Russian assistance to Chinese uh, strategic missile defenses um, and all kinds of other things. But I think we'd have to see a new level of cooperation between the two sides for Russia to mitigate the impact of sanctions and to mitigate its diplomatic isolation. So if you're Vladimir Putin, you probably don't want to torpedo the signature achievement of Xi Jinping, not least when you're traveling there to show support when Western countries have been boycotting it. So I would say there is grounds to think um, as, as with my invasionologist hat on, <laughs> that um, you'd, you'd probably want to attack after February 20th. But I honestly think there's still a decent chance of it happening anytime from February 10th. So um, Putin can keep us guessing. He'll want to keep an element of surprise. And what he won't want is a sense that on February 15th, if he's ready to go, but thinking, well, hang on, should I wait for the Olympics? He won't want uh, thousands of missiles, uh, stingers, small, arm, small arms rounds to be flooding in from Poland, Britain, the Netherlands, Lithuania, uh, and all kinds of other ways that might complicate his invasion. So the timing at that stage may also be shaped by other factors other than the Olympics. I would love to see your invasionologist hat. So if you if you have one, can you send us a picture? <laughs> I, I'm going to make one after this. It'll be fashioned from economist covers. <laughs> so, uh, Helen, I'd like to bring you in on this too, because you know, there's a, there's, as I said at the beginning, there's a deep history here. But Shashank, you mentioned that you know, one way of thinking about this, that the central goal is, you called it regime change. And Russia's been here before. Um, there's the comparison with what happened in 2014 in Ukraine, but other you know, conflicts on, on Russia's borders with former Soviet states involving, you know, pockets, territorial pockets within those states, the protection of Russian-aligned peoples within those states, and then often forms of regime change. Helen, how do you think this one compares to 2014? It feels very different, not least the build-up feels very different. In 2014, there was a popular uprising, which is not what's going on here. This is This feels much more engineered in high geopolitical terms from the outset, though all of these conflicts have had high geopolitical consequences and risks. How do you do the comparison with 2014? I mean, I think that that they are um, fundamentally different in a in a military sense, because what had to be done from um, Russia's point of view or from Putin's point of view for the annexation of Crimea, um, where Russian troops already were, or at least some were, was rather different than what we're talking about of this big massing of Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. Though, obviously, in terms of the issue about what's going on in the Donbass region, that came into play quite quickly in the 2014 um, crisis, or it was a result of the, the 2014 crisis. I think one difference is, is the very fact that the Ukraine crisis has been running since 2014 in, that particular, in this particular form anyway. There is much more awareness of it, much more, in some sense, engagement with it. I mean, if you listen to what Merkel was saying back in 2014, she talks as if this is somehow some great surprise that how on earth is it happening? How on earth, she says at one point, is this happening in Europe? 
you know, in the in the post Cold War world. She, I don't know whether that's quite the expression that she uses, but there's a sense of like of bewilderment that actually the European countries are having to deal with this kind of um, problem. I don't think anybody, any of the players now are taken aback um, by um, the nature of this crisis and the fact that um, that that Russia is um, basically pushing against the the territorial borders that emerged as a consequence of the end of the of the um, of the Soviet Union. I think there there are some comparisons that can be made in terms of the economic difficulties that Ukraine um, faced, which were considerable in two thousand and fourteen. And I, I think there is a a story about how uh, Ukraine's financial position weakened probably from 2011 um, onwards and then that made it very difficult for the Ukrainian government to deal with the if you like the competing questions of what to do about Russia and joining what was effectively uh, having effectively associate membership of the of the European Union and and, and that unraveling played a very significant part in the crisis of um, 2014 but Ukraine's in an even worse position now in many ways economically than it than it was then I think that that part of the crisis is kind of missed. Is a, there's a fundamental problem about the Ukrainian economy uh, and the question of like what to do about that uh, and how far that the European um, Union can support um, Ukraine um, economically is not really being uh, addressed. I think another way of looking at it in terms of the energy issue and the role of Ukraine essentially as a as a transit um, gas state, so a, a state. Um, with pipelines through which gush, Russian um, gas exports reach um, Europe. Putin has been trying to end that for a long time. Um, it's been, you know, in one sense, perhaps it's the most consistent um, strategic thing that he's done. And he is further down that road uh, in 2022 than he was in 2014, not least because, as Shashank's already um, mentioned, we're near the completion um, of Nord Stream or at least its completion and then it, it isn't actually opened yet and so I think that the Nord Stream is much more part of this crisis than it was in 2014 and the options for uh, Putin in terms of shutting Ukraine out completely of Russia's transit gas system are getting closer. So thank you. Just come back on that. I'd like to add one thought to that, which is lots of differences to 2014. Helen's talked about lots of them. Um, but one additional one I'd add is is this question of America's position in the world and America's orientation. Um, one of the things we're saying now is that if Russia invades, it will not only face terrible sanctions of all sorts, but also a, a catalyzed NATO, new NATO deployments on in Eastern Europe, precisely the things it said it, it, it's going to war to avoid, or it, it, it's showing force to avoid NATO's, NATO's encroachment on its borders. Just as in 2014, we saw new battle groups turn up in Poland, the Baltic states. Well, so too this time round would Putin end up with a situation of new uh, military forces in Eastern Europe, um, new reinforcements in the Black Sea, perhaps Sweden and Finland flirting with membership of the alliance. Of course, they're not members right now. One thing, if you're in the Kremlin, that might lead you to think, hang on a minute, I don't believe all of that, is not just the swirling questions around energy politics in Europe and are you really willing to cut gas supplies off and so on. It's also this question of um, America's position relative to 2014 is that it, the the shift to the Indo-Pacific psychologically, diplomatically, militarily is much, much more advanced than it was in the Obama years of, of that period. And we saw a global posture review come out by the Biden administration just now. And it was disappointing to lots of people in Washington, to the mainstream sort of think tank community in Washington, the blob, if you'd like to call them that, um, who said... Um, this is nowhere near enough Asia. You're still not pulling enough stuff out of the Middle East. You're still bogged down in Europe. Now, the Kremlin's calculation may be that the Biden administration simply won't pivot significant numbers of troops to Europe, um, even if there's an attack, 
because ultimately it knows the cold hard truth is that the military balance in the Western Pacific is eroding and it needs to focus there. So if that's your calculation, you may think, you know, these feckless Europeans aren't going to do anything. Look at Germany uh, and, and the Brits are sort of isolated and on the edge and can't do very much anyway. And they've been cutting their tank numbers in large quantities in, in any case. And so perhaps I'll take my chances. I just won't. Be, I don't believe that the Americans will really reinforce the eastern flank, even if I plough forces into Belarus and take over large chunks of Ukraine. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Just one more question on, on energy. Is, is Do you think it is the case that relative to, say, 2014, the Ukrainian administration has less leverage here um, in the sense that part of the peril back then would have been, as Helen suggested, the, the possibility of simply cutting Ukraine and Ukraine as a gas transit state out was extremely dangerous for Russia too. But there are now alternatives and that leaves Ukraine weaker. It has less to threaten Russia with. Does Ukraine have anything to threaten Russia with? apart from not getting bogged down in a miserable long-term invasion? Well, I think, first of all, it's worth emphasising that the gas problem for Europe is, and I bow to Helen's knowledge on this, but it's, it's, not, it's not a sort of singular problem for Europe as a whole. It's very much fragmented among different states. I know that you know many of the most vulnerable ones are countries like Austria, Lithuania, Slovakia, Hungary. It's a problem that is, is, is affects some states more than others. But you're right. I think although Ukraine does have less leverage on the gas front than it did back then, it has additional leverage in a number of other ways, which is that um, it's it's the level of support that it's received in this crisis is higher than it might otherwise have expected. Yes, Biden has said he won't send troops. No one will send troops. No one's going to send high end air defense missiles, you know, really big, serious systems that would do damage to Russia. So he's on his own in that sense. But I think if he, if he looks at the sort of level of support he's got from Poland, the Baltic states, from the northern European countries, from the UK, it's much higher than he could have expected. He hasn't been thrown to the wolves. Uh, no one said to him, uh, implement the Minsk agreements and, and give a uh, veto to separatists uh, in Donbass over your central government affairs or, or else, or we'll simply drop you and stop sending you arms. I think he's come out of this pretty well, Zelensky, um, and, and is willing to take his chances. And just on the energy front, I mean, I think that there are there is a danger that we get completely taken by the gas question and forget about the oil question. If we just go back to the stick with the gas question for the moment and think about um, what the response of the European Union countries and the United States to what happened in, in 2014, there was no significant action sanctions at all on anything that would hurt the Russians in energy terms. That doesn't mean to say that those sanctions didn't hurt um, Russia. I think that they particularly actually did on the agriculture side, but they didn't hurt Russia on the energy um, side. If you say, well, what would have been the options then? One would have been for the German government, and it really was still a, a, a potentially open question then for the German government in terms of Nord Stream 2, is to say that we're not going ahead with that. And that would have been a major blow um, to um, Putin. Um, and, and, it, and as I say, because this project he has had to take um, Ukraine out of the gas transit system, Russia's gas transit system, is, lo is long term. That would have been a big blow to Putin. It didn't happen. But the other thing that really didn't happen was any kind of um, sanctions on Russia's oil exports. It is the case that in the period from 2011, um, that Iran, for instance, had been subject to um, sanctions on its oil exports in it. They played a pretty significant role in bringing Iran to the negotiating table about the first Iran 
um, nuclear um, deal. This didn't happen in that case, in the, in, in the Ukrainian case, and it couldn't happen because it isn't just that countries like Germany uh, are dependent upon um, Russian gas exports through these pipelines, are dependent um, um, on um, Russian oil exports. Now, obviously, you can turn around much more quickly who you're buying oil from than who you're buying um, gas from. But the consequences of of that, of, of Germany significantly reducing its demand for Russian oil exports would be to send the price of oil um, much higher than it is now. And we know that the Biden administration has been preoccupied by oil prices, rightly or wrongly, um, for the last six months or so, putting a lot of pressure on OPEC+, Plus, which does include um, Russia, in order to um, increase um, production. And in some ways, I think that th- that was what that is what would really hurt Russia the most in some respects now, um, sanctions on um, oil exports. But it's also the thing that just doesn't get discussed at all. And so this is where I think I slightly disagree with you, um, Shasha, when you say that the sanctions would be incredibly punitive. Unless that they're directed at Russia's oil exports, they're not incredibly punitive in my view. Do you want to come back on that, Shashi? I think I think this is an interesting question because it, it also depends on what else we see around the oligarchs surrounding Putin, for example. So we're looking at prospective European sanctions on individuals who give strategic support to the Kremlin. The Both the Americans and the Europeans are interested in these. And I think if you're looking at imposing serious damage on Russia's economy, I think Helen's absolutely correct that that if you don't touch gas and you don't touch energy, that that's going to be very limited in what it achieves. On the other hand, if the aim is to stop Russia's political elite from accessing their wealth in the West, from accessing Western universities and institutions and their property in London and so on, that could also have an outsized political effect that we don't fully understand just yet. Um, so broadly, I, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree, but I think um, there's a willingness to go further on lots of these areas than there was in 2014, when um, you know Europe, the Euro- Europeans sort of shied away. I think this would be such a seismic event, particularly if it, if it is a major ground offensive that takes lots of territory that is aimed at toppling the government in Kiev. I think it would be a really shocking moment for European security. And in, in to even a greater extent than 2014, it would upend assumptions about what is possible and what is necessary. Um, it would really shock Europeans in a major way. So in a sense, on that note, if we can just step back and t- take a longer historical perspective on this. So two points of comparison here, one with the end of the Cold War and then to go further back, sort of early 20th century perspectives will come to at the end. But Helen mentioned it before that this much of this has its roots, not just in the formal settlements and territorial uh, setup that came out of the Cold War, but in the the mindset that emerged then too. Um, If there was an understanding in places like Germany, that somehow this was a new Europe, Uh, Europe was no longer being pulled either east or west, but Europe had become something different, and that this, these events feel like a sort of shocking intrusion into that, well, as was perceived then, new reality, but now looks like a kind of deep naivety that something happened with the end of the Soviet Union that meant that these kinds of conflicts, territorial, old-fashioned threats of military invasion, were a thing of the past. Do you think that in a way some of this does come out of a an illusion of the early mid nineties. Um, and that, you know, we are when we have been ever since paying a price for that. Yes, I think it does. And from Russia's perspective, which I think it's only fair to provide, and not just a sort of Putinist perspective, but a mainstream Russian foreign policy perspective, they would look at the post Cold War order as as uh, a sort of lopsided one that was signed at a moment of weakness. And they would point to a succession of critical events that showed Western hypocrisy. And this could begin with the NATO bombing of Serbia uh, over the issue of Kosovo. And they would say, well, you Westerners say this is a shocking moment because we don't withdraw, we don't redraw we don't redraw borders by force. We don't, um, you know, we don't change the borders after wars. Well, what did you do after Kosovo? And how did Kosovo's notional independence come about? 
they would point to Libya, which I think impacted Putin quite strongly because he felt Medvedev at the time was misled by NATO in the scope of its objectives in toppling Gaddafi. They would point to the colour revolutions, which they would see as Western efforts to subvert established regimes through covert means, through hybrid warfare, a phrase that we now attribute to Russia, but of course, in its original formulation by Valery Gerasimov, the Russian chief of staff, was a description of what he saw as Western ways of warfare. And all of those things were um, were sort of acts of hubris and aggression undertaken at moments when NATO thought it had the upper hand and the West thought it had the upper hand. And now that America is drifting to Asia, it has its prestige bruised in Afghanistan, its global leadership is under question, and Europeans are perhaps, you know, if not as united as I suggested earlier, then then certainly undecided about the future of European defence with divisions between a French-led approach and a, a sort of Atlanticist approach that Russia is no longer going to tolerate that hypocrisy and those double standards. I think there's a good interview by Dmitry Trenin, who's the head of the Carnegie Moscow Centre on their website this week, that outlines some of those views. And now that that illusion is is fading away, Russia is taking advantage of its military modernization of the last 10 years. It's in much better shape, its army, than it was in the 2008 Georgia war to revise that order by force. And we as Europeans struggle to come to terms with that because perhaps we don't understand Russia's sense of how they feel we unilaterally rewrote elements of that order over years and years after 1990. I think there's two different questions here in a way that there's one central one about what's gone on in German politics in this respect in the in the post-Cold War um, world. And I'd say in, in many ways in Europe, that's where the, the centre of the, the complacency has um, been and it's been reinforced by the fact that, that Germany, it, it took what was West Germany's energy dependence upon the Soviet Union into the, into the post-Cold War world as a dependency on Russia. And that was a, a continuity that then had ramifications, not least, I would say, in relation to Ukraine's position that weren't really thought um, through and that Germany, in, in, in some sense, just disengaged from military matters in the post-Cold War world when actually in terms of the geopolitics of the states between it and Russia, things have just got much, much more complicated um, than they were. So I, I think there was this sort of sort of what we call like airy fairy kind of like optimism of the, the 1990s that you might sort of put a label on and, and say and say it had its centre in, in Germany. But I think there was also somehow it coexisted with a certain kind of realism which said that actually we might talk a lot about European unity and the common European home, although that was actually a Gorbachev phrase and bringing Poland and Hungary and Czech Republic and Slovakia into the into the um, European Union. But whatever the language of European idealism about that that was um, used, it went hand in hand with moves to bring the same stakes into NATO, either prior to joining the European Union, which was true of Poland and Hungary, Czech Republic and Slovakia, or at the same time, um, which was true of some of the later um, accessions. And I think part of the reason why the problem is you call the crisis is Ukraine is, is because that isn't what happened there. And that's the prelude, if you like, to the, the 2014 crisis, is this attempt to bring Ukraine closer to the European Union, not through full membership, through but through associate membership, at a time when the Germans and French had already made very clear in 2008 that they weren't prepared to contemplate NATO. Um, membership. So the European Union could kind of engage in the idealism of what was at the time then called, you know, like enlargement or bringing the whole of more of Europe into the um, European Union. But there was a hard edge to it via NATO and they just pull apart over um, Ukraine. And that's really um, exposed. And, in, and I think that in some sense, that is the opportunity that that um, that, that that Putin has been um, given because what had been a realism just fell apart over Ukraine. What I well, All I'd say is that, in a way, the 2008 Bucharest declaration that we mentioned earlier, which was this, the, the, was, looks very hard-edged in hindsight. You know, Ukraine will become a member of the alliance. That phrase repeated again and again, including in December by NATO. Ukraine will become a member of the alliance. 
it was actually a messy compromise because the George W. Bush administration wanted Ukraine and Georgia to become members. They wanted a membership action plan, which is something that, um, you know, gives you a path to membership. France and Germany said, that's crazy. We're not going to do that. Um, and the compromise was, OK, we'll say they will join, but we won't give them a membership action plan and we won't say when, which at the time was thought to be a sort of soft way of doing it. Now, you know, anyone who doesn't follow the sort of details of this issue will think that's crazy because that sounds like a, a hard commitment that they will join, even harder than the ones given to countries like, uh, you know, countries in the Balkans. So um, that that compromise was a really was a really um, a botched one. And the other thing to say is NATO expansion in that period or the certainly the, the 90s and to some extent, even in the early 2000s, it wasn't seen as a military problem. When, when, and, you know, when we had states like Romania, Hungary, countries join the alliance, no one ever thought you'd actually have to potentially put tanks in these countries. You know, it, it just wasn't a serious you know, idea. Russia wasn't a military threat. Russia was a partner on counterterrorism. It was a state at a low ebb. It didn't have a serious military. So the military conditions dramatically changed in the mid to late 2000s. And so this NATO debate that was formulated in a period where NATO was a kind of political vehicle to help reform militaries, to help provide a political cocoon for developing countries or middle-income countries, um, that just looked completely out of kilter with the military reality where you actually had to defend these allies. Ukraine, I think I completely agree, Ukraine was sort of caught in an awkward middle position. So that then leads to a last question, which is a, an even longer term historical perspective. I mean, it must be possible here that if it goes Shashank, the way you think it, it might well go, that this does lead to a military conflict, that it's profoundly destabilizing, not only in Ukraine and not only in some of the terms that we've talked about, but that it suggests that we're in an era which is more familiar from the early 20th century than the late 20th century, where the post-Cold War world emerged from a fairly frozen geographical territorial set of arrangements onto which were overlaying these ambitions for a new kind of politics, a new kind of world order. But that those set territorial arrangements are what's starting to break down in a way that would be very familiar to people in the early 20th century, that on the edges of Europe, this is all unstable, borders are unstable, people or peoples are in the wrong places from certain other people's perspectives, that none of this really is as rigid as it looks. And this is closer to that earlier 20th century story. And it makes, as in so many other respects, we might say, it makes the later part of the 20th century not look like the culmination of some long story, but a bit more of an outlier. And that you know, a Europe where all sorts of things between, let's put it like this, Germany and Russia are much more unstable than a, just a glance at the political map would have you believe. I think to put it in those terms, and specifically between Germany and Russia, is too pessimistic. I think you're absolutely right that lots of that post-Soviet space is in a much more uncertain position. I'd be really worried if I was in Central Asia. Um, Belarus, Kazakhstan, we haven't said an awful lot about, but, you know, other Central Asian countries too. I'd be worried in the Balkans, um, where they're also caught in something of a halfway house with weak institutions, uh, encroaching Russian influence, uncertain NATO commitment, a France that is you know, very ambivalent about European enlargement as well. Um, and I'd be worried if I was in, in Sweden and Finland, whose NATO debates are shifting. There's, there's sort of uh, interesting signalling going on there uh, around whether they might move closer to NATO. But ultimately, I think NATO has still set down a reasonably strong red line. NATO territory is is going to be defended. I think Putin knows that. And I think the, the uncertainty around Ukraine, the sort of grey area that it represents, only serves to underscore that NATO members get Article 5, other people don't. So, you know, if you're sitting in, um, you know, Hungary or Bulgaria or even the Baltics, which are militarily very difficult to defend, I think I'd be fairly confident. I think I'd be fairly confident that NATO allies ultimately will step up because the cost of not doing so would be to completely shatter that order and move entirely back to a 19th century fluidity. It's those middle areas that are much, much more uncertain. So Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, um, Kazakhstan, the other the other countries in Central Asia. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic about NATO and its ability to hold the line. It's been rejuvenated in the past five or six years. It's writing a new strategic concept. I think that it will 
pull together and it will step up. Um, and it, of course, still has it still has three countries who are nuclear nuclear armed powers, Britain, France and the United States. And nuclear weapons still matter for these things. We haven't talked about them a lot. We perhaps sometimes imagine they don't matter, but they do. For everyone else, I think there is more of a Wild West edge to it now. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, there's a couple of things here. I mean, first of all, I think that we can see perhaps more clearly than at the time just how odd in many respects the the end of the Soviet Union was. I mean, it's such a a, a huge geopolitical change um, for these independent states plus Russia to replace the, the Soviet Union. And for it to happen as peacefully and with as little fallout as it did, is, is it, I mean, it, it's quite difficult to think of anything that sort of historically um, compares with it in terms of the the size of the geopolitical change and the absence of conflict that that um, ensued. So I think in one sense, we might think of it as history catching up with that um, oddity. I agree with quite a bit of what Shashank said. I mean, if you're you know, like Poland, I don't think you've got any real reason to worry um, about the commitment of um, of NATO. I mean, I would perhaps think stress that NATO is more divided than 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 than, than Shasha um, thinks, and I do think the energy questions um, play into that. I think the problem, if you're Poland, though, is is that a huge crisis in Ukraine of the kind that Shashan is talking about is simply not containable within Ukraine. I don't mean that in military terms. I mean that in terms of, for instance, like refugees coming in um, across the um, across the um, the border. And that's where I think that it can sometimes be forgotten that Ukraine is really a large country on the European uh, map. It's been very difficult to contain a crisis in Ukraine um, to um, Ukraine. And I think that you know, it's not a coincidence that some of the people who thought kind of quite hard at the beginning of the post Cold War period, um, um, like um, Brzezinski, the former American national security advisor, going back to the seventies, I think, which I think it was in Carter's administration, um, you know, thought that Ukraine was the sort of the the, the pivot in some sense of the the post Cold War um, European um, world, and I, I just don't think that it it can be isolated into a Ukraine problem in a way in which you could think that maybe the Belarus problem could be. Ukraine is going to affect the entirety of the European um, continent. I think that's actually correct. What I what I meant to say was I don't think Poland or Lithuania or Latvia need fear regime change or redrawing of their borders or annexation. But I think Helen is entirely correct that they should fear blowback and, and fallout from any major war in Ukraine. Um, not just refugees, but also if you have large numbers of Russian troops in Belarus and indeed in, in Ukraine, the Sawalki Gap, this little slender corridor that goes from Poland to the Baltic states, is under severe pressure and it would be difficult to resupply and defend those states. And on top of that, if you are looking at a Russian attack that is intended to change regime in Kiev, I think the Russians may have to stay there longer than they suppose, um, even if they don't want an occupation. And I think that you would be looking at the US and other European states arming and supporting an insurgency. Certainly, uh, the Biden administration has said the CIA and the Pentagon would both do so. Now, we know what that means when you have these kind of arms pipelines to an insurgency, rebel rear areas, porous borders. Um, you have real instability as countries like Bulgaria, Poland become rear bases for arms shipments. You know, think about the Afghan war in Pakistan. So we would be looking at a protracted period of real instability. Um, uh, and even if the actual territorial integrity of NATO states was not under threat, I think it would be, you know, the worst the worst security crisis Europe has has faced, uh, certainly since the Balkan Wars, probably since the Cold War in that, in that sense. You can read Shashank in The Economist on the Ukraine crisis and much else besides, and we'll post a link to his latest in our show notes. Before we go, there is one other announcement that we'd like to make. After six years and more than 300 episodes, we've decided that Talking Politics is coming to the end of its shelf life as a podcast, and we're going to start winding it down as we go on to do other things. 
it has been really wonderful and fascinating for us to cover politics over the last six years. Corbyn, Brexit, Trump, that was our original tagline. And I've had such great engagement from you, our listeners. There's never a good time to end a project like this. And we're very well aware that the world, as we've just been talking about, is convulsed at the moment and British politics is going through its own convulsions. But because there isn't a good time to end, we wanted to stop while we were all still enjoying it. We are particularly proud that we managed to keep going right through from the start of the pandemic. And in many ways, we've upped our output. It's been a challenge. We're aware the pandemic has been a challenge for everybody. So we are going to wind down talking politics, but we're not stopping straight away by any means. We still have episodes to come on the French presidential elections. We are going to be talking about the fate of Boris Johnson, even if we don't know yet what that is. And most importantly, I'm going to be talking to Helen about her new book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, which is out very soon. Our last episode will air on the 3rd of March. But for now, we wanted to let you know how much Catherine, Helen and I and everyone involved in Talking Politics have enjoyed and valued making this podcast. And we do hope you've enjoyed and valued listening to it too. Do please join us again next week. Until then, my name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Perfect. Shall we call it? Lovely. Um, I'm going to press stop if that's okay. Oh, Shashank, do you speak Russian? I don't speak Russian. Oh, I've, had to, I've had to translate lots of it in the last month. Oh, I was just going to see if you could say we've been talking politics in Russian, but oh, know. I wish I, I wish I could. Yeah, I wish I could. Yeah. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.